Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and our vision is to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from Sunday worship and the occasional bonus content. We hope you'll subscribe. Our scripture reading today is from Matthew 6, 19 through 21, and Genesis 1, verse 28. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Alexa. Good morning again and welcome to Redeemer Lincoln Square. We've been looking at our Redeemer LSQ DNA all fall long. And uh, we've been doing this because we want to get the essence of who we are. We want to get at what is the core of what we are about. And we, therefore, have been doing this series so that whether you're new or you've been here for a while, we figure out what does it mean to be laser-focused on these DNA aspects of who we are. Which is why that you should have some curiosity right now. We've waited until this moment, weeks into the series, to deal with the thing that you spend 90% of your waking life on, work. We as a church have to talk about this thing because this topic isn't just a topic on the side. This is, in a lot of ways, the driving force of our culture. This is, this is what it means to be in New York. My first real job was actually at uh, Dallas Barbecue on 3rd Avenue and uh, uh, 72nd Street. Big portions, lots of good food. I was a host there, and even as a really young uh, individual, I, I remember talking to one of my coworkers saying, like, why do you do what you do? And he said this. It's etched in my head. He said, I live to work, and I work to live, Mike. That's, 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 that's life. I live to work, and I work to live. And I thought that was actually a great uh, motto for how we think about work in New York. But I've, it's haunted me because I've wondered my entire life, is that the way that we should approach work? Is the culture's view of how we approach work the thing that we should embody as well? This is not going to be a sermon about all the ways that, uh, you know, work and, and how you live it out and, and uh, when it comes to the breakdown of it. I'd rather go deeper into asking the deeper question of how does work function in my life? Dorothy Sayers has an, a great essay on this, Why Work? I recommend it. She says this. She says, in nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect work. She, the church, has allowed work and religion to become separate departments. And so what she's saying is this. She's saying we have a tendency, whether the church or you as individuals, to see what we do over here in my work life separate from my spiritual life, my church life. And actually, they should be combined. Think about it. If you spend 90% of your waking life in work, 
how does what I say I believe, how does what I say I, found, I, I put my, my foundation on affect that? And how do I see the world through that? And so we're going to look at three things today. We're going to look at the problem of work. We're going to look at the solution to work. And we're going to look at how do we make it operational and personal in my life? It's very, I set that up because that's a lot of how we do work, right? What's the problem? What's the solution? How do we make it operational? That's what we're going to do. The problem, solution, how to make it operational in my life. Now, number one, the problem for New Yorkers, the problem of work. And the problem is this. No matter if you've been born here, if you've been raised here, if you moved here, without a deeper understanding of how we were made, why we were made, why we're here, what's the point of it all, you and I are going to struggle with the role of work in my life. Now, some of you are going to say, no, no, that's not my problem. My problem is I have these disappointments, and I'm burnt out, and I'm trying to get my identity and know who I am. That's why, we, by the way, the song that we just sang, I Am Who I Say, you, you, I am who, who um, you say I am. Thank you. I <laughs> think about it for a second. <laughs> See, because I don't even think that way. But, that, but what's so healing there is the idea that identity isn't something you have to achieve. It's something that's already been given to you. You say, that's, that's my real problem. Guess what? That's all about work. Disappointment, burnout, identity, it's still about work. That's why I've put this Genesis passage here. It's only one verse, but this is a, a great summary verse. Look at it right here. This is at the very end of the whole first chapter of Genesis. The first book of the Bible says the world was made out of nothing. God was a creator, and he makes humans who are creators as well. And he tells humans, be fruitful and multiply and fill the world and subdue it and rule. And all these words are trying to get at that there's something about being a human that creates, which is why the first job humans were given were gardeners. Now, yes, I grew up in this town. Yes, I've never had a garden myself, but I know this much about gardening. If you have a garden and you pave over it with a parking lot, that's not good gardening, right? Asphalt doesn't equal good gardening. But also not good gardening is that if you take your bit of land and you do nothing with it, if you just sort of leave it uncultivated, gardening is not being a park ranger. If you want to make sure that you never get fired as a park ranger, leave your, your, your whole job is to keep something pristine and unspoiled and not actually uh, cultivate it. But that's not what's been given to us. To be a gardener means to work the land, to produce, to, come, to bring something out of it. And so what God is saying in this one st summary statement is that there's something about being human that's taking the elements around us and forming them and building them and making something of it, seeing the potential in an area and making it actual. And I think that what's also important here is that this happens in Genesis 1. This means this is happening before the fall. Yes, there's Genesis 3. Yes, the fall shows that work is hard and things are broken. But if this is true and that actually work was made before the fall, then there's something about work, as hard as it is, as bad as it is, there's something inherently good in and of it. That there's something about from walking your dog to being in law and medicine to being a teacher to being in business, there's something about taking the ingredients that are around you and building something out of it and reworking and producing it that is good in of itself. Which, but if that's true, then a truncated view of work, if you believe work is just about getting in and getting out, getting what you can, 
make your own little sort of personal individualistic fiefdom through, your, through money or accomplishments or whatnot, that is not actually the call here to work. That, that the biblical view of work means to actually be part of something that's bigger than yourself. Now, that, hold that. Simultaneously realize there's still a problem with work. And the problem is this, is that work is broken. There is a Genesis 3. There is a fall that, that work doesn't fully and ultimately work right now. That many of you right now are part of teams where the boss takes all the glory and all the uh, accomplishments that the team does and takes ownership for it. But then when something breaks, blame somebody else on the team and not themselves. You're all part of spaces where there's backstabbing and office politics and people who you thought were your friends who become your enemies and people who are your enemies who are trying to take you down. That we're part of processes of work that suck the life out of us. And if you live in this town long enough, you've grown up here, or if you come here, you will feel that every single day. And so here's the problem. We're stuck. Because on one hand, there is something good about work that you were created for. It's part of your your DNA. It's part of your design. And yet at the same time, work doesn't work. And we have to hold those things together. And the problem with that is that I can't tell you how many times I've seen people, they come here or they're born here, but they get this narrative about work like this. If I just get my accomplishments and, I, and if I, I get the accolades or if I get the money, if I can create my own little personal fiefdom, then I'll actually be happy. Then I'll get what I need. If, I, if, if work is about what I, I put into work so I can get stuff out of it for myself only, people like that usually don't last longer than five years here because they have a consumeristic mindset. But they're not getting because they won't get what they need to get fully out of this place. And ironically, they leave thinking the problem is New York when actually they take their consumeristic mindset to some other space. And they end up doing that same thing somewhere else, wherever else you go. Why does that matter? Because this, what you believe about tomorrow affects how you live today. What I mean by that is this, how you see your faith, you, you, what you trust in, affect your work, is going to actually lead to how you live your life now, right now. And I, that's why I believe this church collectively, but you individualistically, are through this one little verse, verse 28, is being called to something so much bigger and something so much more than what we thought. And the tension is, somehow you have to see your job, your life, about bringing about flourishing bigger and greater than yourself, and at the same time holding the idea that your identity can't be in that work. And if you do, it's going to crush you. It's going to kill you. That's where the burnout and disappointment and anxiety and sadness and hurt and the sleepless nights, that's where it all, that's where it all is. And the sooner we realize that, the sooner we realize that the way you and I daily treat work— by the way— you can still have a cognitive view that like, I'm a Christian, I believe that, you know, I'm, you know, God, yay. But then functionally, if you actually still hold this view of work for contentment and validity and status and accomplishment, the sooner we see that, the sooner we're going to be able to connect that view to why there is the anxiety and the sleeplessness and the sadness and the disappointment because of that broken understanding of work. And so, New Yorkers, do you see the problem? Do you see... That the world does this. It either says, hey, work, all good. Find your identity. Oh, it's not working out for you? Find some new work. Throw yourself into that. All good, all good. Or work is all bad. Make as much as you can so that you can stop working. Work so that you don't have to work. 
But the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible beautifully holds together work is good but fallen. And we have to hold those things together to last in this town or else we'll burn out or burn up. All right, number one. Now, number two. That's the problem. Solution. Look at the second passage here. It's also the first one that's printed. This is from the book of Matthew. Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And he's waited, interestingly, he's been talking about spiritual things and heavenly things, and all of a sudden he switches and starts talking about how we should relate to our work. And I'll notice, it's hard to—at first when you read this fast, you think he's like really negative about possessions. But if you look carefully, he's not banning possessions in and of themselves. He's not actually saying that you can't have treasures. He's not even saying you can't store up treasures. He says, do not store up treasures for yourself. In fact, lots of parts of the Bible talk about you should store things. That's prudent. Joseph gets promoted because he's able to store up uh, during times of drought, right? God gave you a brain. Use it. The problem isn't in of itself possessions. So what's the problem? Look at verse 21, and then we can work backwards. Jesus says, hey, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so try to get, get at what Jesus is trying to get here. He's trying to say, hey, where your treasure is, your heart, it will be also. And so the problem is not money-making necessarily or status-making or family-making. The problem is, is how you wield those things for your heart. Now back up. Now look, because reverse engineer this. Why is that wrong? Because moths and vermin can destroy and thieves can break in and steal. In other words, if you have your heart in these things, it is a fragile place to put it because it's breakable or stealable. Either way, he's trying to get at, it's, it's um, fleeting. And for Jesus, the only fix to, for him is not that you don't have these things. It's that we don't fix our heart on these things. We don't put our hearts on those kind of treasures. Instead, and instead, he says, put your treasure in heaven. Now, it sounds very, it's a pious thought. Like, oh, heaven, what, what is he trying to get at? He's trying to say, your heart in treasure in heaven is a place where your status is secure. It's a place where your place in life is secure, where your relationship to God is founded in it for all of eternity. That no robbery, no loss, no, no um, breaking or stealing on earth can destroy or take that. It's kind of like, um, you know, if, you, if uh, you, you build your own little fiefdom and then you spend all your time trying to protect it, where's the best place to keep something where nobody can take it? In Jesus' mind, it's in a place where nobody can get in heaven. And he's saying, therefore, to the degree that you have made his love and his care and his status that's been placed upon you real in your life, to that degree will you not destroy ourselves through work in this world and in New York. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after worship on Sundays. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastoral team and other members of our church community. If you have a question, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us at Q&R on a Sunday morning. And now, back to this week's sermon. Now, some of you are like, Michael, my problem is not overwork. I'm good. In fact, 
even though I live in this town, I'm going to get out of this place before I fall apart, right? I'm going to just—this is just a little season. I'm going to make my little thing, and then I'm going to get out of here. The problem with that view is you think you're actually not beholden by treasures on, on earth, but actually all you're doing is just supping out the treasures of this particular location in New York for a different type of treasure. What I mean by that is you're still treasuring something. You're actually still longing, and you say, you know, if I just get out of here, if I go over there, then I'll be okay. But it's just fill in the blank of a different form of how you can feel fulfilled. And so when Jesus says, do not store up treasure in heaven, what he's doing in that moment is he's not saying, be all pious and ethereal. You know, if, if Jesus is who he says he is, and he's the creator God of the universe as well, then he, he knows he made humans to create. He know, remembers Genesis. He's not saying don't take your faith and just live somewhere far out. No, he's saying take your faith and put it inside your work. Or else you're going to toil every day trying to make work be something that it can't. See, I think, ask yourself, how much of our frustrations that, are, that, that we're upset about, whether it's relationally or work-based or family-based, how much it is because what we think is, should be happening is not working out and we're actually frustrated by it, and that frustration is beyond just a, a general one. It's getting at the core of who we are. And so what, what, what this is trying to get at is that if this is true, if Jesus is right and that we have to store our treasure in heaven— and he has come to fix and redeem this world, then you can be sure whatever you work on right now, to some degree, is going to last. And that changes everything, doesn't it? Um, Woody Allen, in, his, in this movie, uh, Annie Hall, it's like etched in my head. It's a really funny scene where um, he has this flashback where Woody Allen's like a kid. And his teacher is wondering why hasn't he handed in his homework. And Woody Allen says, well, I didn't hand in my, my homework because of the second law of thermodynamics. And the teacher's like, what are you talking about? He said, well, listen, the second law of thermodynamics, this is supposed to be funny, right, because he's a kid explaining this. The second law of thermodynamics is that the world is expanding. Not just the world, the whole universe is, is energy is, is running out. Uh, heat and light is running out because as the world expands, it's get, everything's getting farther and farther away from each other, and it's eventually going to wind down. And anything and everything that we do right now is not going to matter eventually. That's why I didn't hand in my homework. Because does it really matter? That's what he does. And what's interesting is I think that's how a lot of us see work. We oscillate between going, ah, this doesn't really matter in the, in the grand scheme of things in one sense, and it's all insignificant, and then throwing our lives into it because we think somehow we're going to get some sort of identity through it. And yet, if Jesus is true, and there is a redemption and restoration of all things, that there is actually ultimate significance to our work, but it's broken here and now, that is wonderfully balanced. Why? Because on one level, you'll never underwork and just say, none of this matters. I'm just going to try to get things for myself because there is a long trajectory that your work will actually last. And at the same time, you're not going to overwork because your identity is rooted in him. I don't see anything else more balanced than that in this world. Nothing. And so my question before we move on is this. Do, 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 is that not just a thought? Is that actually how you live? Is that actually the core of who you are? Do you ha are you able to root your significance beyond what you do or what people think you do? See, it's so telling in our, in, our, in, our, uh, in our city. First thing people ask is, what's your name? How are you doing? I'm Michael. Next thing they say is, what do you do? And I'm, by the way, it, I've grown up in this town enough now that I'm a minister. It's always, I know what's coming. They say, what do you do? And I'm always like, 
I'm a minister. Because <laughs> it's always, the face is always like, oh man, what do I talk, how do I talk to this guy? It's hard because nobody knows how to process that because it's like, uh, what, what do I do with that? Because it's hard to, what we're doing, we ask somebody, what do you do? We're trying to size up and know where, where we place them on the, on, the, on the ladder. But this changes it all. So ask yourself, what's your significance? What am, I, where, what am I really treasuring? What am I really holding dear and near to my life? At the same time, are you asking regularly, not how do I just kind of clock in, clock out? Are you asking really, what does flourishing look like? What does human flourishing look like in my job? How do I bring that about as a doctor or a teacher or a businessman or a woman or as uh, just picking up some trash? And simultaneously, how do you hold that with the idea, sometimes a job is just a job. It's not your life. Very difficult, but that's the call. That's the solution. Now, last point. Fine. How do we make this operational in our lives? How do we make this personal in our lives? Number one, operationally, if work is something we do but not who we are, we're to help fix and care for this world. We're actually part of stewarding what we have to bring about human flourishing, which means, this is hard to say, your life's goal is not retirement. Your life goal has to be beyond that. We have to ask, what change in my field right now will bring about more, human, more flourishing, more wholeness? Let me try to give you examples. I knew a person a couple years ago. I was working for this finance company here in the city. And he saw that um, the people who were, were buying their financial products, that a lot of the people who were buying them didn't really know how to use them well. So he decided to quit his job, start a new one that would actually do a better job at, at being clearer about what they sold. I mean, but, but you can apply this to anything, can't you? Parents, if you hold this view, this cosmic view of work, then your job is not just to raise kids who are successful individually and that, you know, work hard and get into a good college. No, your job is to ask, do I get raise kids who care and who love and who serve? Or if you're a single person, are you asking, hmm, what does human flourishing look like for married people around me? Or if you're a married person, are you asking yourself, what does human flourishing look like for single people around me? What do they need? How, what are, where, where can I go in and enter and, and bring what I've been given to those things? See, this, this would revolutionize not just how we live as at, uh, in this church, but out in the world too. Because why? Because now, instead of life trying to be running away from the problems of the world, this view of work means you would look at the world's problems as something to put yourself into. You would start seeing problems in life and not think, think about how do I run away, but run towards them. That means if you think, by the way, if you think New York's a hard place to live, if you think this is like a, you know, whoa, there's some real broken things here. That this is saying to us, we have more reason to stay here than ever before. To seek its flourishing. By the way, if you think this is a really easy place to live and this is great and wonderful, great, you're fine, you're okay, you're stay, just stay. Um, just kidding. Rodney Stark in his book, The Rise of Christianity, pointed out that historically the reason why Christianity kind of exploded 2,000 years ago is because when things got hard, everybody else ran away. But it was Christians who ran in the pandemics towards the things that are hard and not away from them. Now, of course, this is all nice. I'm saying all these things, and you're like, great, that's nice. But um, <laughs> how do we actually get that in our lives where we're not running away but running towards and the problem is, is this, is I can stand up here all day and say, Jesus loves you, God loves you, and your face is just going to give me that like blank stare like, ugh, 
Why? That's a nice thought, isn't it? It's a Hallmark card. I could send you a Hallmark card every single day uh, of the year that says, Jesus loves you. And that's not operational. It's a, it's a nice idea. It's a warm, fuzzy thought. It's still not going to change you. There has to be some way to make that real. And I think that's what First Peter, uh, verse—it's uh, uh, chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. You know what First Peter's trying to do? He's trying to encourage Christians who are downtrodden. You know what he says? He says, guess what? You are God's special possession. And that word possession is actually treasure. So you are God's treasure. And you go, okay, what is that, why does that matter? But go back to our passage. Jesus says, treasure that which is in heaven. Why? Because the people in heaven are treasuring you. That's a profound thought. Put it this way. Does anybody in your life, do you guys have problems trying to buy something for, for particular people? Are there people in your life that are really difficult to buy gifts for? There's some people that are really hard. I know I have some of those people in my life. What if you have to buy a gift for somebody who has everything? Let's just say he's God. And God has created everything and made everything. And, uh, you know, that's an incredibly different—what do you give somebody who already has everything? What this text is saying is that you can't give to somebody who has everything unless—well, actually, did he actually have everything? Actually, no, he didn't. You are his special treasure. Profoundly, First Peter 2 is saying it's you. You are the treasure that he wanted. You're the relationship he craved. You are the, the presence he desired. And it's your reception in, to the people of God that was more important to him than anything else. The entire arc of the Bible is that Jesus loses the treasures of the universe to receive you as treasure. In other words, we spend our lives—this is what's so ironic—we spend our lives just trying to accumulate and get treasure, and Jesus spends his entire life just giving it away. Right? So what, what that means then is, for you and me, when we treasure that, when we actually finally understand that, that is the operational move in our lives when we'll be able to give up our other treasures and treasure him. In other words, if you say right now, oh, no, no, I got this, Michael. Cool, we're good. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. That's not the, what I'm saying. Mere belief is not actually treasuring. It is qu- quite possible for you to say, I believe in God, and walk out those doors today and not really get this. That you can in your head believe in Jesus, but in your heart you're still looking for treasure somewhere else. And I, I would actually argue no one in this room, including myself, has really functionally thought out the implications of this. Years ago, there was a guy named uh, Billy D. Harris. He went missing in France during World War II. He was a pilot, and his plane was shot down July 1944. And his wife, Peggy Harris, was told that he died in France, but the War Department didn't know where he died, and that wasn't good enough for her. So you know what she did? She, she spent the rest of her life writing to her congressman, trying to find out where her husband died. And so she wrote a letter every month, every year, for decades. And you know what? Fifty years went by. Still didn't know what happened. And then something happened. Her cousin was actually, instead of trying to write to the War Department, his cousin started going around to parts of France that maybe um, Billy D. Harris was shot down in. And one day they found 
in a really, really small remote town, a main street named Boulevard Billy D. Harris. And it turns out, apparently, he had been protecting this small area, this town, from being bombed. And yet he was shot down, and as his plane was about to hit the town, he swerved at the last minute and died in a wooded area. And the people of that town found his plane, found his dog tags, right? That's why he knew the, his name. Buried him in, the, in, a, in a cemetery with his name on it. And then put at the core of their town his name. All for one deed of valor that he did. And I, as I think about that story, I'm asking myself, wait a second. If after one act of valor, this whole town named its main street of this man forever, what would we do if we knew we were saved and loved and treasured and redeemed eternally by Jesus? Would we name the main street of our heart after him? Right? Would we stop trying to to kind of name our streets after other things, or would we etch into every fiber of our history his love and his grace? See, I think the problem with work is that deep, deep, deep down, at the end of the day, the reason why we love it is because at some form, we feel like if I just obey, then I'll be accepted. If I just do enough, then I'll be loved. And yet the whole arc of the Bible is saying, no, 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 you've already been accepted. And all obedience flows out of that now. And if we could just stop trying to build our name, if we just would accept our acceptance, if we would just inherit our inheritance here, then we won't actually be falling apart like we do. Right? That he can be your savior if and only if we stop trying to be our saviors. And you say right now, I go, no, no, Mike, I get this. I'm not trying to save myself. Oh, yeah, then why aren't you spending more time with him? Why don't you sit with him? Why are you running yourself ragged in this town all day long? Right? Trust the trustworthy, and who is more trustworthy than the one who gave up his life for you? Well, um, as I've gotten older, I've realized that a lot of companies in this town, when things start going bad, you know what they do? They get a consultant. They do. They get, before they, they close up shop, they, they, they spend a ton of money and get a consultant to come in and tell them how to fix things. Have you ever thought about what it would have been like if Jesus had gotten a consultant? What if Jesus had said, you know what, hey, I'm going to come and I'm trying to, um, you know, influence the world. What should I do? No consultant in this world today would have said, you know what, here's what you do. Don't aspire for any political office. <laughs> Don't actually try to influence other people. Don't have any military power. Be born into uh, poverty. Hold no societal office of note. Be a wandering homeless teacher. Get killed when you're 33, and then you'll be good to go. No consultant would ever say that. And yet, Jesus changed the world, and guess what? You and I can too, if we place him at the core of our life. You're not going to win the world through power, but you will through service. You're not going to win through might. You will through light. So please, last thing I want to say here is don't, please don't say, okay, okay, I'm going to walk out. I got it today. I'm now going to find my more, I'm going to find my identity, not in my work. I'm going to, I'm just going to find it in him. That's not how it works. That's still willpower. That's still you trying to take the bonds and chains of how you every day operationally live and change that, take those chains off yourself. You can't. It's only if we really actually fully feel treasured in love right now. My wife was uh, adopted. She was adopted on Valentine's Day two months after she was born. And she was raised, her parents raised her 
where um, they told her right away she was adopted. So she used to, as a kid, walk around and tell other kids, I'm adopted. And actually, I'm special because I'm adopted. Your parents had to have you. My parents <laughs> chose me. And, that, and she said it in a very nice and daring way. Don't be, I mean, I, I, I thought it's beautiful because guess what? If Jesus treasured us on the cross and brought us back into the family of God, then the good news is if we're his treasure, we can walk around saying the same thing. He chose me. He, he desired me. He loved me. And if that's true, now work is, is just work. It's not our treasure, folks. You have all the needs. You have all the love that you could possibly need and want. And do you see, therefore, how free you could live in this town if we had that? If work was just work and not your life because you don't need it to be your treasure. I'll, I'm going to end by reading a few lyrics from the hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be, written by a woman, um, Frances Havergale. She wrote this. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I behold. Take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my love, my Lord, I pour, at thy feet its treasure store. Francis died at the age of 42. She died young. She didn't even know how impactful her music would be. It was actually her sister who published her work. And even though she didn't finish her work, it's a good reminder for all of us, none of us fully finished our work. Nobody fully realized, re sees what will last beyond us, but that's okay. Treasure him first. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in some ways this is a huge, huge concept, and we can't even get our, our mind around all the facets of it. Father, there's some beauty here that you created. A, one of the reasons why work is the way that it operates in our lives is because we were made to work as creators, as gardeners. I pray that we would get a higher view of what, we, what we're doing. But let it move beyond just our, our individual spaces, but help us to see the kingdom that's coming. Help us to place ourselves there, Father. But we, we, that can only begin if we see ourselves treasured by you. If and when we do that, Father, I just pray that, that we get a new conception of that, profound one, not an intellectual ascent, but actually something that changes us. Move that in our lives. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We pray that it's a helpful resource as you process aspects of Christianity and grow in your faith. To learn more about our church, including details about Sunday worship, check out our website at RedeemerLSQ.com.